0: Are certain people born evil, or does life sometimes have a way of warping a good soul into something unrecognizably horrible? Tonight's story of one deranged killer, Haddon Clark, will have you asking that very question.
1: We'll be joined by a special guest who worked with Clark as a corrections officer during the early days of Clark's incarceration. To protect our guest's identity, we'll be referring to him as Jim throughout tonight's show.
0: Hey Jen, how are you? I'm doing really well tonight. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about tonight's episode. We I have a first too. guest.
1: I know the fact that we have our first guest is so exciting. Maybe we're actually becoming legitimate. I feel like that. So, so yeah, so we want to introduce our guest whose name is Jim. And Jim, um we're so excited to have you here this evening.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I don't know uh, how legitimate I'm going to make you, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs>
1: Trust me, anything, um, any little tiny bit of legitimacy, it's going to be more than what we already have. So, so we're we're just excited you're here. And let, I'm just going to go ahead and talk a bit about what we'll be discussing this evening, and then we'll we'll talk about drinks and all of that. But so the reason we we decided to invite Jim is because he has some really up close and personal interaction with a really with a really scary figure. So we're going to be discussing the life and crimes of Haddon Clark, who may or may not. be a serial killer depending on what evidence you want to permit and we'll talk more about that later but he definitely killed two people in a really, really horrible way, a young woman and a young girl, um, really, really awful crimes. So Jim actually worked with Haddon at the Montgomery County Correctional Facility in Rockville, Maryland, and so has really some interesting insights, just I think working in you know corrections in general, but also working with a criminal, the likes of Haddon Clark. So we're going to talk about Haddon's life, upbringing, we're going to talk about his crimes, and then we're going to really delve in with Jim and get some insight into what it's like to work with someone one like that. But before we do that, we want to talk about what we're drinking because that's really important to us. So Jen, let's start with you. What are you drinking?
0: I am having a coconut rum that's punch. beautiful. It's such a pretty color. Thank you. It calls for coconut rum. It also has pineapple in it. It has OJ. It also has some fruit punch as well hmm. and lemonade. Forgot about the so lemonade. how much rum does it have in it? Altogether, it has three ounces of rum, but I doubled up. So six, there's six. six.
1: Lord have mercy. Because <laughs> I was going to
0: say that's a lot of mixer, you know,
1: so I thought, well, that's more honey, that's more fruit juice than, than drink in there. But I guess not with six ounces of rum and lime as well. Jim, what are you drinking? Because we, we did warn you that you needed to bring something to drink.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, nothing so bougie or fancy as what you guys usually do. I am drinking Bitches Brew from Dogfish Head. <laughs>
1: Ooh, Nice. We were just talking about Dogfish Head the other awesome. day. My last I bottle, love it. it's Bitches Brew. That sounds fun. What is it? Did you say it's an IPA or?
2: No, it's a. Uh, it's kind of a mixture of a mead and a wood barrel aged
1: hmm. beer.
2: Kind of um It's hard to describe. They It gets its name from the Miles Davis album Bitches Brew, and yeah, they got his picture oh. on the label.
0: Oh, that's so cool. They come in like these really large bottles, right? Yeah, Jen? I've been saving
2: it for a special occasion.
0: Well, that's well this nice. is it. That's right. That-
2: and 90. it's
1: 9%. Wow. Maybe not as much as Jen's six shots of uh, when, coconut rum. Yeah, but well. still pretty good. <laughs> we'll see how bougie I am by the end of this
0: episode, bitches. <laughs>
1: Something tells me not very bougie. Jen actually got me for Christmas a bottle of God, Wumeshu, which is this Japanese plum wine. And I, I'm i just telling Jim this. I know I told you this last time, Jen, but um, I got super excited because I thought it was 100. There was 100% on the bottle. And I was like, woo, this is going to be great. But it turns out it was just 14% alcohol. So it wasn't like pure grain plum wine or anything.
2: It'd be pretty rough.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's probably just as well that it wasn't, but it was good. I'm actually drinking, um, and I'll let you come to your own conclusions about why, but I made a peach martini this evening. It is, I used two ounces of vodka, about an ounce of chambord, of course, peach nectar, I think two ounces of that, and then about a half ounce of lime juice, and then garnished with raspberries. It's really good. On, and you're on your I'm second? On your second, yeah. I quadrupled mm. it. In fact, like I made so much that it was overflowing my shaker. So I probably should not quite try quadrupling in the future. We'll see how you fare you're tonight. Not
2: on, you're not on Jen's level yet.
1: Yeah, Jen, you may have a lot of editing ahead of you. All <laughs> I'm say. sure that I will. <laughs> so should we just jump in? Because I feel like we have a lot to talk about tonight. And I want to make sure that we use our time well since we have Jim with us. And he may get sick of us and want to get get off of here
0: after after too long. And yeah, he's already been on here over an hour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 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 so, Jen, I think you're going to start us off, right? Yeah, I'm going to start us off. I'm just going to talk about Haddon Clark's upbringing, his family, because I think it's he has a really complicated upbringing and a really interesting one at the same time and not in a good sort of way. So Haddon, his full name is Haddon Irving Clark, and he was born on July 31st, 1952 in Troy, New York, and he was the second of four children. And I think it's important too, to just kind of go on the the birth order of his siblings because, you know, they're an important part of the story as well. His oldest brother was Bradfield Haddon Clark, and he was born in 1951. And then the Haddon Clark we're talking about tonight, Haddon Irving Clark, he was born, as I said, July 31st, 1952. Then there was the birth of his brother, Jeffrey, or I guess it w- would it be Joffrey or Jeffrey? Hey Jeffrey. We have a friend who spells her kid's name like that, and it's just Jeffrey. It's G E O F F R E Y and he was born in 1955. And then the youngest is Allison Clark, and she was born in 1959. They moved a lot when they were young. They moved up to like two times a year. And the oldest brother, Bradfield, he also, he, all the children had problems, but Bradfield had a a real bad, or had a real bad problem with his temper. He angered easily. He would lash out, but he was considered, he was considered very successful, at least in the beginning. So once they started to become a little bit more settled, the mom, Flavia is her name, she started to suspect that her kids were troubled. One, as I was talking earlier with with, uh, Bradfield, angry and easily and lashing out, especially with Haddon, he had a lot of problems, like problems with balance, and he would trip very easily, and she ended up taking him to a number of specialists. And he was so clumsy or he tripped so easily and so frequently that as a small child, his mom's his mom, Flavia's solution to this was to put padded tape around his head. Oh, my god. So he wouldn't get. Yeah. So he wouldn't get a concussion. I wonder if so that, that was, was embarrassing
1: solution. for him like with other kids. Maybe he was too young to really care.
0: I would venture to say that pr- perhaps <laughs> it was embarrassing. <laughs> it sounds embarrassing. No, he, he was probably too young at that time. So when he was four, she sent him to this um, Yale study center where he saw doctors and and different specialists. And they determined that they said that he had cerebral palsy and some mild brain damage. And kids were afraid of him because not only would he lash out like his brother, he would get really angry and lash out. He did it far more often. But kids were afraid of him because of that. So they didn't want to play with him because he would get mad. He would physically try to hurt them sulk when he didn't get his way. And they were just, they were really scared. So he didn't really have anybody to to play with. There was one family in particular that the Clarks would get together with and I think have dinner and that sort of thing. But I think due to his behavior and the family was just kind of strange in general, that particular family kind of started to distance themselves from mm-hmm. from the Clarks as well. Sounds really lonely for them. Oh, it does. I mean, for all of them, it sounds like it was a terrible upbringing. So when hadn't as he got older, the older, tougher kids would make fun of him and torment him because they weren't afraid of him. He, the way he would get his revenge is that he would kidnap their pets and then he would kill them and leave them on the porch of these people that in his mind had wronged him. Please don't him. tell me there were cats involved in this, Jen. There were all sorts of animals. Oh, I think mostly cats and I'm dogs. Sorry. But he also evidently the father and his name is also Haddon as well. The father would take Bradfield hunting with him or Brad hunting with him, but he wouldn't take Haddon. The only thing that was a little unclear is that it looked like that they not only hunted with with guns, but I think they did some trapping as well. Well, Haddon learned to trap, so I don't know if he did that on his own or his father wouldn't take them if they were just using guns, but would allow him to go if they were just setting traps or if Haddon just learned how to do this on his own. So he learned to trap animals and... He would capture quite a few, like mostly squirrels and raccoons and that sort of thing. But I got most of the information on Hedon Clark's upbringing from this book called Born Evil, a True Story of Cannibalism and Serial Murder by Adrian Havel. And it was published in 2001. And this book provided the most information that I could find about his upbringing because it's kind of limited. I mean, you see some things here and there, but you really don't know, like, what is really reliable and what isn't. What is just speculation or rumor versus, you know actually having interviewed family members and other people. So I think this book is probably the most solid source for for his upbringing. So anyway, he would trap these animals. And according to the book, they had, quote, a high mortality rate. Oh, God. And I know, I was like, oh my God. So he would keep them for a while. He would keep them up. Up until a month at the longest, but he would almost always kill them and dissect them. And the only one that kinda lasts for a bit was this one raccoon, I guess, that he had found in the neighborhood that had been injured. And he actually taught that raccoon to sit on his head and hmm. he would ride his bike around with this raccoon on his I head. I just have to say,
1: like that's a bad sign when you're killing animals at that young age. Just like the the research shows that, you know, that um that is definitely a an indication of some conduct
0: disorder or antisocial stuff going on. Even pre-research, I mean, if your kid's trapping animals and yeah. on a regular basis and then always ultimately end up dissecting them, one would think that would be a huge red flag. You would think. Did he do it in secret? I don't see how he could have done it in secret, because if it's known that he, this is something that he did mm-hmm. and he had like kind of this menagerie of animals, wow. I think sometimes he even had more than, you know, one at a time. I think they I don't know this for sure, but it seems like they knew about it and they just mm. let him do it. And then his brother, Jeffrey, was saying that Haddon didn't seem like he had a sense of right and wrong from early on. And he used an example that once they were riding bikes together and they were trying to ride without using any hands and they were doing that. And then Haddon just reached over and grabbed his handlebars or veered into him and caused an accident. And when he asked Haddon for help, Haddon just turned around and went home. And when Haddon came in the house, he said, oh, there's been an accident, but don't worry. The bike is okay."
1: Ooh, yeah.
0: That's just, I think, how he felt. Yeah, thought. like a
1: lack of being able to identify with somebody else's pain or like lack of empathy.
0: And the mom, Flavia, she was really into, she was really active in the PTA, evidently, and also Boy Scouts, but she also started to drink very heavily. And her husband... It seemed like he was pretty removed from, at least emotionally, seemed like he was pretty removed from the family. So she was taking Haddon back and forth to these doctor's appointments, to therapy, and her husband just, he worked a lot. He was a chemist. Very, very smart man by all accounts. So Haddon was just taking up so much time that the other Clark kids became jealous of him because they weren't getting the attention that that they needed. And the sister Allison, she reacted to this by running away, and she was actually placed in a psychiatric hospital for a number of months. Really? Well, and years later, she would describe, when talking about her upbringing, she basically felt like she never had a family. And I don't know if the, in the in the '60s, if that's like a thing, if you ran away from home, they would put you in a psychiatric hospital. I mean, you might know more about that well, than
1: my mom. Actually, ran away from home at 15, and that would have been in that would have been in the late '50s, and. Social services ended up working with her and asked her, like, where do you want to go? And she went to live with her her aunt. But I don't know. I've never heard that. So but that's that's really interesting. It makes me wonder if, like, because of the family history of all the mental health issues,
0: that's part of why they took Allison. It seems a possibility that there could have been a lot more there even going on with her, possibly. So the reason why I gave the birth order of the children was because Haddon's father, he his name is also Haddon. His oldest brother, Brad, his middle name was Haddon. So before Haddon was born, the Haddon we're talking about now, his parents were expecting a girl. And I don't know why. I guess they just figured they just wanted one because of this long line of Haddons, but it ended up being a boy and they were disappointed. And so disappointed that they had actually had picked out a name for a girl if they had a girl. And the name the father had picked out was Kristen. So when he when Haddon was born, they're disappointed because he's a guy or because he's a boy and so the mom dressed him in pink dresses and frilly underwear until he went to elementary school. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, and his father alternated from calling him retard to Kristen. You know, you can talk more about that later, why that becomes an important. So had hadn't his fondness of women's underwear, it continued throughout his life. One time he was mowing the, the neighbor's lawn and she caught him or her husband caught him. I've seen one account that she caught him. I saw another account. It was the husband. That he had gotten into her room and she caught him wearing her her nightgown, and there was also a peeping tom incident that he was involved in. And his mom took him again to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and they told her, "Don't worry, he'll grow." Do you know how
1: old he was around that time, Jen?
0: He was at least fourteen. That's a crazy thing. I can't imagine, you know, a psychiatrist or a
1: therapist saying that today. Like, oh, don't worry about that. He'll grow out of looking in people's windows.
0: And I didn't see the specifics of exactly what he had done. But I guess peeping time, he just looked through somebody's window. But Mm -hmm. so he was he told the mom that, you know, that he would grow out of it. And I think, too, that it's kind of interesting because his mom did try to take him to get help Mm -hmm. at, you know, at a number of places. But something about her seems a little bit. A little bit off, too. She started drinking very heavily. She became an alcoholic. The father had problems with alcohol. They fought frequently. She often blamed Haddon directly to his face Mm -hmm. of, you know, all the problems that the family was having, blamed him for it. So Haddon, he actually ended up going to like a, a culinary institute. And it was a very prestigious one. I believe it was one in I think New it was York. the CIA. What does that stand? I mean, it's not the CIA. I know what um, you're talking about. Yeah, like
1: the Culinary Institute of America, I think.
0: Yeah. So it was very prestigious. He didn't have a problem landing a job. In fact, he, he got a job at a restaurant in Provincetown, Massachusetts. But he didn't last very long there because of the strange things that he would do. And I think at one point he admitted to urinating into a vat. Of of potatoes, or that might been that might have been another job he had. But he was very strange. He really creeped people out at work. He was caught. They said guzzling beef I blood. Read that yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then oh. so he had a number of jobs going here and there. He even worked for like a cruise line, and he even did ice sculptures for the Olympics in nineteen eighty in Lake hmm. Placid. Like in that regard, he was accomplished. He was really skilled at what he would do, but he just continued to have problems. So he goes into the military, into the Navy, and I think the the feeling in the family was that that would kind of provide him a structure and maybe straighten him out. He didn't fare well in the Navy at all because he's in the military and he's wearing like women's underwear and that yeah, sort that of didn't thing. Go well. Yeah, that didn't go very well at all. So they, he ended up getting beaten up really, really badly To the point he was in the hospital. So he was discharged honorably in 1985 after being beaten. And they had, at that time, had stated, you know, he had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And that's the first time I'd seen that diagnosis Mm -hmm. for him was then. Based on the reading that I did and all the specialists he had seen, I didn't see anything in there about paranoid schizophrenia Mm -hmm. until... Until the military, I have to say I
1: have my doubts about that diagnosis. I mean, I don't know everything there is to know about Haddon
0: Clark, but I think
1: that sometimes, you know, one—that's a really serious diagnosis to put on someone. And I think once you have a diagnosis, it becomes a label and it follows you. And so, you know, you go to other providers, they don't know what to diagnose. And so, okay, let me just use the previous diagnosis. So I just really wonder about that. I mean, clearly, I think he was more likely to have dissociative identity disorder. You know, he did mention some stuff that that would make me make me think that. But just and certainly some episodes of psychosis. But so I don't know. Maybe he did have that. I just I'm not I'm not sold on it.
0: It sounds like he could have had many, many things, a range of things. So with his brother, the last thing I'll add into his upbringing, his brother Bradfield, he was considered, I guess, the successful one, or at least at that time. I don't know what his brother Jeffrey off the top of my head or his, his sister later went on to do, but Brad was considered to be very handsome he excelled in school. He actually got an MBA in 1976, and he married in 1977. The marriage didn't last that long. They, they divorced, like, in the early 80s. And by the early 80s, he was also, he was very close to getting his PhD in social psychology. He was, what was it called, um... EBD everything but dissertation. I think he got his MB his MBA from from Rider. I'm not so sure about the PhD where he was working on that, but he had moved to California and he was hired as a software specialist. And when he was there, he met this woman, he started dating her, and she ended up breaking up with him like in 1984. It doesn't sound like it was a long long relationship. It just sounded like they dated for a while and then she ended up breaking it off. But the interesting thing is is that Soon after she broke it off with him, co-workers were saying that he started to act really strangely mm-hmm. and that he was really encouraging them to read this book called Grendel. Do you know what that is? Have you ever heard of that? It's a cult classic. Oh,
1: Grendel. Yeah. You
0: know, John Grendel. Gardner, I think. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure about who wrote it. it was- Grendel, then. It's called Grendel. And it's about a half-human, half-monster who is unusually close to his mother and enjoys eating people. Mm. That's, That's fascinating. That's
2: he... old Norse mythology.
0: Yeah, Grendel's the retelling of Beowulf from the monster's point of view. Well, in 1984, he started to see another co-worker. She was married. And they were kind of fooling around. I mean, not like full on, but there was some kissing and that sort of thing. And she was married and the company they were working for, she and Brad were working for, it was going under. And I don't know if she had left at at that point. I think she had. One of them had left. I think it was her. She had left first. And Brad had invited her and her husband over for dinner. And he invited her knowing that her husband had been very busy. And I think he was often out of town. So I think he was just kind of hoping Mm -hmm. that they could be alone. And he was right. Um, The co-worker's name is Patricia Mack. So he has her over. Her husband doesn't come. And sounds like they had a nice night by all accounts. He was grilling lamb and there had been a lot of drinking. And I think he had started off with beer. Then he started drinking scotch. Then he moved on to Keontae. Like Hannibal. I I was going (laughs) to ask you, doesn't that sound like you're talking about lamb, Keontae? I think they got it from, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't kind of yeah, lift that. that.
1: That's crazy. So,
0: yeah. So they having, it sounds like they were having a nice night. I think he lived like in a condo in a, or an apartment and they went downstairs by the pool. Then they came back up to the apartment again and then they started making out and he ended up biting her nipple <gasps> off. And so, yeah, and I won't go too much into it, but. So he ended up doing that. Of course, she screams and like slaps him and then he starts beating her up and he ends up killing her and he cuts one of her breasts off and he grills it and he eats this, part of it. Uh, and the the police later came looking for her like the next day. Her car was there and I think he waited another 24 hours and then he just confessed to the police and he really didn't know why he did it. And he just couldn't explain really why he did it other than, you know, he Bit her and she slapped him, and I guess he became angry and then he killed her. Mm. And then, but he just really didn't seem like he had really an explanation at all for like he could provide any type of insight really mm. into his behavior. And even like you had mentioned earlier, that, like as a kid, he was quick to anger, but
1: so I can see if he snapped and killed her, but it's a whole other thing to like cut off a body part and eat it, right? That takes mm-hmm. it's just like a whole other level of pathology.
0: Mm. Yeah. So that is, those are the basics of his upbringing. Again, I got most of this information, or if not all of it, from the book Born Evil, A True Story of Cannibalism and Serial Murder by Adrian Havel, and that's in 2001. And there's also another article, I believe, published in The New Yorker. It's called A Hole in the Ground by Alec Wilkinson, and that's a good Mm -hmm. article, too. So I'm going to turn it over to you. So,
1: um, like Jen, I also relied on a lot on the book Born Evil by Adrian Havel. And I went to a site called Murderpedia. And I also had several articles from different newspapers. So that was that was really helpful. Um, So what I want to do is talk about a couple of, well, really the main the main two crimes, the crimes that were proven that Haddon Clark committed. And then we'll talk about, you know, their speculation, which he has really given rise to himself that that he maybe killed a lot more people than than the two that we know about um so the first murder i want to talk about is the murder of michelle Doerr, which occurred on may 31st 1986 by all accounts it was a really hot day you know it was i guess that's right around memorial day when you think about it but summer had come early um so so people were out just kind of having fun i think it was a saturday but i don't quote me on that Haddon had actually been living um, in an upstairs room at his brother Jeff's home. And I don't know if you got this feeling, Jen, but I definitely got the sense that Jeff was relatively normal, that he was maybe the most functional out of everybody in that family.
0: I don't know much about the daughter, Allison. In the book, it talks about he had a really nasty divorce Hmm. and there were allegations of child Hmm. abuse. It looks like with the perhaps with the with the child abuse, there was some merit to that because I believe some daycare providers or something had seen him be abusive towards his kids. OK, but it looked like that the children, their children or Jeffrey's children were troubled okay. as well. Well,
1: that's really interesting that you bring that up, because I read that actually the reason hadn't he was hadn't was living at Jeff's house, but Jeff told him he had to get out. And the reason that Haddon had to leave was he, Jeff had discovered that he was actually masturbating in front of his kids. So it sounds oh. like there was some sexual stuff going on there. So mm. this was, I think, he pa- Had was packing up his stuff on May thirty first, or he had basically gotten everything out, and this was his last day at the house. So I want to sort of cut to little Michelle Dore, who was only six years old, and her parents had had a really troubled marriage. They were they had this really acrimonious, nasty divorce. Her dad's name was Carl, but they were in you know they would fight in front of her, and I think that Carl, um, the dad, would would beat her mother, and so like this poor little lamb like at six years old you know she had seen seen so many awful things but i also read that her parents even though they they hated each other they really loved her and so she seemed to have at least a lot of affection from them so that weekend she was spending time with her dad carl he had custody of custody of her on the weekends. And because it was so hot that day, he told her, you know, I'm going to fill up your little swimming pool. And then later in the afternoon, around four o'clock, I'll take you to the public pool and we'll go swimming. So she's wearing this little pink ruffled bathing suit. And she goes out to play in her pool. And her dad, meanwhile, is inside. I think he's drinking beer and watching NASCAR. So it sounds like that sounds familiar from the place I come from. That's pretty much what people do on a Saturday. So that's what he's doing, and he he goes out and checks on her later and he doesn't see her, but he doesn't really get that worried. And then later, around five or five thirty, he's like, Where is where's Michelle? You know? So he goes and and looks for her. It turns out that little Michelle she got bored playing by herself. So as kids do, she just went down the street, and one of her friends was Jeff's kid, a lot whose name was Eliza. So she was looking for her little friend Eliza, but Eliza wasn't there. So Michelle runs into to Haddon Clark. Now, I want to I want to back up and give like a little, just a little backstory fact that's going to be important. Eliza, I'm not sure how old she was, but I'm assuming she was probably around Michelle's age, so anywhere between like six and eight or nine or something like that. Earlier that week, Eliza had called Haddon a retard. And apparently that made Haddon extremely angry. And I've read that people talk about revenge as a motivation in in both of the murders that we know that Haddon committed, both Michelle and um, Laura, who we'll get to in a little bit. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So Michelle comes up to Haddon and is like, oh, you know, is Eliza there? I mean, I want to, can she come out and play? And and Haddon's like, well, just go on in the house. She's upstairs playing with her dolls. So uh, Michelle does that and she goes upstairs. Meanwhile, Haddon, who is, Jen explained, was working as a chef or a sous chef, goes to the back of his truck and he's got, and this just, oh, this creeps me out so bad. He's got this big box of knives and he's got like, you know, like a meat mallet and a deboning knife and like every kind of chef knife that you can imagine. And so he 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 grabs some knives and he heads upstairs and he he murders Michelle. And it's a really brutal murder. It's a stabbing. I think he slit her throat. There were just multiple injuries. So, so Haddon starts cleaning up really quickly because he has to be at his job at the Chevy Chase Country Club in 20 minutes. And he's smart enough to know. I mean, I don't think he's a stupid guy. He's smart enough to know that if he is late for work, that's going to be that could impact an alibi or something like that. So he he goes really quickly. He stuffs Michelle's uh, body into a duffel bag and then stows her in his truck. And he goes to work and he works his entire shift with this little six-year-old's body in the back of his truck. Now, one thing, Michelle was a, she was a fighter. She did not want to die. And during the attack, she bit him on his hand. This part really gets me. So after, after work, his hand is really hurting him. And he stops after work at the VA hospital for treatment and gets his hand taken care of. Now, I don't know why in the name of God, they wouldn't have noticed that this was a bite mark and it that looked like it was from a child's mouth, but apparently nobody, nobody said anything about that. After he gets his hand taken care of, he gets in his truck and he drives towards Baltimore on the old Columbia Pike and he, he digs a shallow grave in the North Point Branch Stream Valley Park. I don't know. Are either of you familiar with that? Like I've driven around the area, but I don't remember that park. No, I I
2: used to I used to live in Montgomery County. I
1: don't You don't know Columbia Pike, but I don't
2: I don't know that park.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's familiar to me like the name at least. I'm sure I've driven on it at some point. So he 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 digs this shallow grave um and it's about 12 miles from where she was murdered. And before he buries her, he he says later that he eats some of her flesh. There are some other accounts where he said he drank some of her blood, but he he consumed some part of her. And I did read um And I can't say that I know where this quote comes from, but he had told someone, I think it was an investigator, a detective, they had asked him why he kills women. And this is a quote, but I can't source it. He says, I thought if I drank the blood of women, it would transform me into a woman. I wanted to become the girls and women I killed, which gives you I think gives you a lot of insight into what's going on in his head, even though it makes absolutely no sense. So Michelle's father, Carl, he soon becomes the lead suspect because investigators always say it's like usually it's usually the family member, so it's the father, the mother, and they they're really pressuring him hard. You know, they're interviewing him, and he ends up having a psychotic break, and he starts to think that okay, if I find my daughter, if she's dead, I'll be able to bring her back to life, and then his Next conclusion is that means I must be Jesus. So he starts referring to himself as the White Messiah. I mean, this is the, you can't make this stuff up. It's it's crazy. And he ends up confessing to his psychiatrist that he had killed his daughter. He was brought in for questioning numerous times, but from what I could find, he was never charged. But he remained he remained a suspect until Haddon was eventually discovered to have murdered Michelle. And I'm going to get to that because this story takes a lot of twists and turns. Her murder would go unsolved for the next 14 years. And it would take the murder of another person. Her name is Laura Hodling, who was was not a young, well, she was a young girl, but not a child. She was 23 years old. And she had just recently, really just recently graduated from Harvard. She was considered brilliant and beautiful by her friends. She was six feet tall and blonde and just like drop-dead gorgeous, and really, really smart. One of her friends said that she thought she was going to be president one day. Her friend thought that about her. So after college graduation, Laura comes home to live with her mother, whose name is Penny. Penny's a psychotherapist, and they live in Bethesda, Maryland. Now, Penny just sounded like a really nice person to me, the mom, because she hired Haddon as a gardener through this organization that placed homeless people in jobs, and she gave Haddon a lot of chances. And, she, you know, as she began to trust him more, she gave him certain privileges. So she said, you know, hey, you can come on in, in the kitchen and make coffee for yourself. Or if you need to use the bathroom, you can use the bathroom when I'm not here. Like, you can come on in the house and stuff like that. And Haddon really kind of took advantage of that. So he started stealing from her. But it was stuff like jewelry, underwear, the clothes that she wore it was really stuff that I think that he was just longing he was longing to wear and that he thought was pretty probably so he took that stuff and then he stole some tools and I don't I don't really know why he did that but Penny did confront him about that and he denied it but I think this it angered Haddon that he was confronted that she would think badly of him because you know like I said she was a really nice person and he started to think of her almost as a mother figure so they you know he I I almost said they got close but it's not like you know, she thought he was her son, but he he did kind of think like, oh, you're my mom, like you're the most reliable person in my life right now. I read that yeah, too. isn't that? It's sad. It's just really, really sad. And it feels like it's just all set up for this perfect tragedy to happen. So Penny tells Haddon she's going um, off to a conference, and it's a shame that that she told him that. She probably told him so he wouldn't come or he would know that she wouldn't be around. And I read that because he felt so close to Penny and he felt like her child, when Laura came home from college, he got really jealous and he felt like Laura was kind of taking his place. So there are some theories that he decides to go after Laura to kill her because he resents her. And if you think about that, to me, that strikes me as like really childish kind of revenge. kid might think about in a childish way, like when they're eight or nine but mm-hmm. you know for an adult man to be thinking that way is just really strange mm-hmm. but if you think about his his upbringing you know as you explained to us you know he he was probably I don't wanna I don't want to psychotherapize him or anything like that but I imagine that he his mental age at least emotionally was probably much younger that he was stuck in a much earlier stage of development than adulthood so anyway um he goes out and he prepares for this murder and he goes to a hardwood or a hardware store. He goes to a hardware store and he buys rope and duct tape. And this is crazy. So he writes a check for his purchases. On the memo line, he writes the word Laura. Can you believe that? It's just mm-hmm. like, I don't even write stuff on the memo line of my checks. Now, if I'm going to commit a murder, <laughs> I'm definitely not going to write anything on the memo line. Like, who's organized enough to do that, first of all? And who, you know, who who would do that? So Laura, she, I think she had had like a job or an internship or something. And so she goes to bed pretty early. Haddon takes his truck and drives to the house around midnight. And he gets the keys. He always had the keys to the house were in the shed in case he like, you know, he wanted to make coffee or go to the bathroom. So he has the keys. He's able to get into into the house and he goes up to her bedroom and he confronts her with a gun. And the scene is just it's awful. Like I read that he forced her to to undress and take a bath. He makes her, it's almost like a ritualistic type thing. He makes her lay on the bed and he ties her up and does all of this stuff. And then eventually he kills her by suffocating her. And I think she was stabbed as well. So this poor woman, like she just endured, endured hours of torture. He finally, you know, it's still dark of night. So he loads her body in his truck and he goes back into the house to sleep in her bed. The next morning, um, as the sun is coming up, he leaves the house and he's dressed as a woman. And I, I should have mentioned—I think he entered the house dressed as a woman as well, and then maybe changed clothes. I wouldn't he be did. surprised if he wore—did he? Yes. Okay. Can you can you say more about that, Jim?
2: He entered the house wearing a wig and I think some of her clothing and kept okay. kept saying, "Call me Laura."
1: Wow. So he kind of, he he was wearing the mom's clothing?
2: No, I think he was wearing some of her clothing that he had stolen. I, I could be oh, wrong. Oh,
1: Laura's clothing. Okay. But
2: I know he was definitely telling, him, telling her to call him Laura. Jesus. And when he started putting the duct tape on her face, you know, her struggling made him excited. And he started duct taping her more. And he wound up mummifying her face almost with the duct mm. tape. And she smothered to death.
1: Oh, that's awful.
2: And... God. I think as um, she was struggling and he realized, you know, what he'd done, he tried to cut the duct tape off and he wound up cutting her throat a little bit with the scissors.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And then he tried taking her earrings as a souvenir and he couldn't get the, I think it was the right one out, so he clipped off her earlobe with the scissors.
1: Was she dead by that point? Uh, yeah, she, she had smothered 80? to
2: death by that point.
1: Okay. Thank God. I mean, not that, you know, I want her to be dead, but I just, it just seems like all that torture after that. I just can't imagine being alive and feeling somebody cut your earlobe off, you know? Well,
2: and he, Um, he kept a souvenir from this. One of the souvenirs he kept was a a bloody pillowcase. And that's, that's mm -hmm. what, that's what did him in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to that shortly, but thank you. That's so, so he went into the house to commit the murder dressed, dressed as a woman. And then the next morning he, he left. So maybe he like put on a different outfit or something.
2: And he brushed her brushed his wig Uh with her brush
1: god so it's like he really identified with laura like he wanted like he wanted to be her he wanted to possess her or or enter into her and in the sense that like and then he would be the the rightful daughter right he'd be the beloved kid There's, there's so much psychosexual stuff going on in here it's like it's not even funny um so a witness there was a lady who I think she worked as a housekeeper and she was standing out with one of the kids um, they were waiting at the bus stop to go to school and she saw Laura quote Laura leaving but of course it wasn't Laura it was um it was Haddon and she just thought oh Laura's you know leaving for her job. He must have looked pretty convincing. I mean, he's kind of a slight guy. Isn't he? can you say a little bit about what he what he looks like, Jim? Cuz to me he looked like not not like a a muscly guy. Like I think I could see him putting on women's clothes and kind of getting away with he it. He
2: was a thin build. Mm-hmm. I, he was a little bit taller than me. Um I'm 5'11, so he was probably one ish somewhere thereabouts.
1: And that's interesting because Laura was six foot, which is unusual for a woman, but so he was about her height. So I think he could pass pretty well, especially if maybe if you didn't see him right up close. Anyway, he, he goes around with her body for a while in his, in his truck, so he buries her the next night off of I-270, and I wonder exactly where, because I used to drive that road. I used to go to Shady Grove up in Rockville for some of my graduate classes, and so I was always on 270, which is a bitch of a road, um, but I just wonder where that was. So he gets really nervous, and he, drives, he decides to get in his truck and drive north to New England, And along the way, he he rented a self-storage locker somewhere. I'm not sure what state this was in. But he puts the items that he stole from Penny and Laura's house in there, including the bloody sheets from the murder. But the pillowcase, for some reason, he ends up throwing the pillowcase in a wooded area, which I presume—I don't know if you know anything about this, Jim— I presume it was, like, close to Laura's grave, like, where he N- buried her? No,
2: actually, he kept it as a souvenir and slept with it. Oh, and you got to remember, he lived in a tent in the woods.
1: Oh, okay. And I think
2: during the time that he was murdering her, he confessed to saying something like, you know, I'm going to take you to the woods to meet the real Haddon.
1: <gasps> oh, my God. Do you?
2: They found a fingerprint on a pillowcase. I never thought you could get a fingerprint from a pillowcase, but evidently... They found the pillowcase with her blood on it and his fingerprint. Mm. And that's what did him in on that.
1: That's so interesting. That was the one little thing he overlooked. I just want to ask you while we're kind of circling around this this issue. I mean, do you really, do you think, because you, you've interacted with him, do you think that he really did think that he was Laura and that, that this was all going on with him? Or do you think that was a ruse that, what do you think about all that?
2: You know, honestly, I don't know what to think. You know, back back then, I was fairly new to corrections. This was over twenty years ago. Um, he he was never what I would call batshit crazy. You know, sorry mm-hmm. for
1: no. <laughs> hey, we cuss all the time on the show.
2: He seemed very high functioning to me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I I've dealt with a lot of mental health patients over the years, and I mean, some of them are just way out there. He never presented any kind of psychosis. He did weird mm-hmm. things, but he never. If you looked at him, you'd, you'd be like, yeah, there's something wrong with this guy, but you couldn't quite put your finger on it. And I think it
1: was, oh, that's for me,
2: mostly for him, it, it was his eyes. He just had yeah. this fucked up look in his eyes. He, it's like mm-hmm. he was looking at you, but he wasn't.
1: To me, when I look at his picture online, they look kind of empty, like kind of they're dark eyes. And they, they look to me like they're sort of bottomless pools. Like you can't really. He has blue eyes. Are they blue? They look brown to me.
2: I remember him being a pale shade of blue, but they're they're definitely blue. Okay, wow. And just okay, uh, it was like he was looking at you, but it was not like he was recognizing you as um mm-hmm. as something that mattered to him. You know, you were just kind of there.
0: Yeah. I could see where you think his eyes were maybe mm-hmm. brown or something, Jen, because in some pictures I I looked and you could see that they were they look very blue to me, and others mm-hmm. i have to they look, look brown at, look again. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think both color eyes can end up looking
1: empty, you know, if if you've got that look. Like, I know Jen and I have an experience with one person who we won't name, but but, and Jen was like, this person is crazy. I'm like, no, I think they're just socially awkward. Well, Jen was right because she always is. She can, like, read people much better than I can, but especially the crazy people. I know crazy when I see it. (laughs) But you would truly, like, you would look in this person's eyes and they would be, like, there would be nothing there. It was so creepy.
0: But kind of like what you're saying, Jim. like if you think about the person we're talking about, Jen, he would – he was mm-hmm. looking at yeah. you, but he wasn't. And maybe – I, kind of I don't know
1: what's going on. Like maybe he's thinking he's just sort of paying more attention to like the stimuli in his head, you know, like what's going on in his head. I don't know.
2: I don't ever really remember any of the therapists talking about him – um yeah, this is way before HIPAA, so I don't remember any of the therapists ever talk about him hearing voices or or anything mm-hmm. like that. And the times that I was in the mental health unit, I didn't work it very often because we had a specialized team that worked it. So I was just there to provide meal breaks, or if somebody was on vacation, I'd get assigned there for a shift or two. But mm-hmm. he never—he was probably one of the tamer ones of the bunch.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, mm-hmm. he was fairly fairly tame.
1: Did he have his own cell, or did he share with somebody else?
2: Um, both. Okay. I think when we first mm-hmm. got him, he was celled uh, by himself. But then as we moved more acute people in there, you get assigned different levels. Level one is the absolute worst. You're self-destructive. You're just gone. Level two, mm-hmm. you're starting to you know, adjust to your medication. Three and four, get more privileges. And he was pretty okay. much a level four almost the entire time he was there.
1: What kind mm. of privileges would he get? Well, you just
2: got, well, first of all, you weren't locked in your cell 24 hours a day and come out for just a shower. Yeah, he mm-hmm. he was out, you know, the entire time of the day. You know, he got full rec room privileges. You know, he could play checkers or cards or dominoes or whatever he wanted to do.
0: Okay, I don't know if this is when he was at your facility, Jim. But when um, Adrian Havel was interviewing for this book, Adrian's a man, I'm assuming right? Assuming
1: he is, but I I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's Laura. <laughs> I'm sorry, that <laughs> well, was a he... terrible joke. <laughs>
0: I actually um, took down this paragraph that in in his book about a a description of Haddon, his state of mind, at least, I guess, when he would go to interview him sometimes. So this is like a paragraph. And this really freaks me out. So Havel says, um, quote, he said, he is rarely in his right mind these days. You can see that today just by peering in his cell. Haddon has taken the sausage links that came with his breakfast tray and suspended them from dental floss in the window of a cell to age. He imagines himself a hunter in a campsite where winter is coming and there could be a food shortage. When he has cured and dried this meat, with the shriveled sausage becoming furry with mold, he will cock his head to the side, then as if a baby bird about to receive a worm from its mother. Had him a mm. leap at one of the brown casings, snapping the brittle tubes in half with his teeth and eating as an afternoon. Snack. I, I never
2: saw anything like that. Really? No, no,
0: no. <sighs> well, he, this guy was, well, this author saying that he would do all sorts of interesting things with food like he would just take it and hide Mm -hmm. it like he would take a a grapefruit peeling and kind of um outer. you see that a lot with homeless people
2: um you know at the jail they'll stash food away and mm -hmm. of course you know when we go in we're trying to keep the cockroaches and the ants and fruit flies down and you go in and you've got like pieces of fruit that are rotten and we go to take it from them, and they get mad at you because yeah, I'm going to eat that later. It's still good. No, it's not. But in their mind, it it, it still is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that kind of behavior doesn't surprise me. I see that quite a bit, uh, and that's and that's more of a homeless behavior than it is uh, like a, a mental health issue behavior, I guess.
1: I wonder too, though, like he, cause you said, Jen, when he was a kid, he used to like, tra- he used to trap animals. And well, but you said he never went camping with his dad. So I just wondered if that almost seems like a, besides the homeless thing, it could be something that a kid sort of imagines, you know, kids play at that. And, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the homeless thing makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. It just seems like he goes from like one weird idea to another. And when this was going on, this excerpt that I was reading, it's like in the first 15, 16 pages of the book. And, um, that's when he, wherever he was staying, he had a, a cellmate or a guy that was beside him that he thought was Jesus. Yeah,
2: that's when he was in state DOC and uh, for um, when he got sentenced for the the Laura Hotling murders.
0: Was that after you knew him,
1: Jim?
2: Well, he had. I started in late '96, and I think he had either just left or had gone just before upstate before I I'd gotten there because i I had mm-hmm. heard the name. And while he was up there, I guess his cellmate convinced him that he was Jesus. And you'll, you'll, you'll see a lot of this kind of behavior in, in prison. If they can, one guy will try and get somebody to tell his crimes, especially if they're in there for petty shit and they're doing five or six years and you can get a guy that's doing 25 or more and he's got more information that the police want, you know, they'll, they'll snitch him out. And try and cut a deal. So, and the guy had like long hair and a beard. You know, he, he kind of looked like Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so hadn't started confessing things to him. And he confessed to the door murder. And that's when they rearrested him mm. and brought him back. They tried to get him to plead to the door murder, I think, uh, during the Laura Hotling trial. Because they, they had an indication. And you talked about the father having a psychotic break. What screwed the father and what made the police look so hard at him is the timelines weren't matching up. Mm-hmm. Haden Clark clocked in at the country club. He punched his card at 246. Well, the father, Carl, was it Carl Dore? Oh, uh, Carl, yeah. yeah. I guess he didn't want to yeah. seem like a bad parent. And like you said, you know, I'm drinking beer, watching NASCAR, not paying attention to my kids. So the timeline that he gave was saying that, you know, he saw her at this time. And Haddon Clark punched in at 246. There wasn't enough time for him to commit the murder and get to work. So something along those lines screwed it mm-hmm. up. And even though, you know, they were interviewing him and they were putting the press on him and they actually slapped a, a picture of Michelle Door down. I knew the detective and um, they were saying, what'd you do with her? What'd you do with her? And he was puking.
0: Mm-hmm. Who? Patton Clark or, was puking. The, the dad? Okay. But
2: he would never say anything. Yeah.
0: So, you were saying that you knew the, um, that one of the detectives. Oh, Is it God. Varney?
2: Oh, it's been so long ago. Is that his name? I, I used to see him in the c- CPU all the time.
0: What's the CPU?
2: Central Processing Unit. Um, oh, okay. Basically, we started a program where the police would bring us their arrestees, and while they're upstairs doing the probable cause paperwork and statement of charges, we're, we're the ones handling all the booking. So, we're doing the photographs, mm-hmm. the searching, all that. So, that helps get them back out on the street faster. And that's, that's something we,
0: but hadn't he's only at, like, how long was he at your facility? And then, I guess, is he there, like, while he's awaiting trial? And then he goes on to something more permanent? Is that how it he, works?
2: He'd been arrested several times. Uh, he'd been arrested for petty theft. He'd been arrested for uh, malicious destruction of property. In a county facility in Maryland, you can only do 18 months sentenced. Anything more than 18 months is state DOC time. However... By the time that some of these more complicated cases are, are going through and you're getting the mental evaluations and, you know, delays of trial and everything. Sometimes it can be two, two and a half years before mm-hmm. somebody finally goes to court. And he came to us around when I was there, around 98 and left early 2000, late 99, early 2000. So he'd been with us for a while, but he was already sentenced to state DOC time on one murder.
1: And that was Laura? Yes. Hotling, totally. yeah, because he had pled guilty, I think, to second degree murder before her body was found, and then he was sentenced to like thirty years in nineteen ninety three. Yeah, and then I think after like just shortly after sentencing, he led police to her. Well, after site. the Jesus thing,
2: that's when he started leading leading people to or led the police to the two bodies.
1: And I read that Jesus would have to accompany him sometimes. Is that true?
2: Yes, uh, and he had to have um, women's underwear and a wig, and uh, they. Okay. Uh, I think that was up in Connecticut.
1: I mean, there's something about Haddon Clark that reminds me of Norman Bates, you know, the dressing up is Norman Bates, and clothes. there's a lot of
2: Silence of the Lambs in there, too, because Buffalo Bill wanted to be a woman. Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. It was was it Ed Gein who, I never know if it's Gein or and I think it was was a Gein, Ed Gein, who, um, who I think they did base Dor- Norman Bates on. He would make skin suits out of women um, and wear them.
0: And Jen, can you speak to a little bit about um, gender and... yeah. You have a background a little bit and you can speak to gender, transgender, difference between, you know. I mean, uh,
1: it's hard to say. I mean, when I think about um, from the little bit I know about Haddon Clark and I think about all of the disruptions in his development from early on, he doesn't strike me as someone who was truly transgender in, in a normal way. Of course, being trans is like a real thing. And, you know, some people are born, we're just kind of born in the, the bodies that don't match our gender identity. Haddon doesn't strike me about like that so much. Um, it strikes me more like he was, it was about wish fulfillment. He was trying to be what this really important figure in his life, his mother, wanted him to be. And he could never, you know, he could never really do that and so it, it's this urge or this need this need for maternal affection is never it's never realized and so he keeps he keeps on it, it escalates and it becomes so that's kind of my my take on it but you know again i i, I haven't interviewed him I haven't sat down with him I but he doesn't strike me as someone who is transgender in in like a normal way if that makes sense
2: well i, re- I remember him having some sort of alter ego where he called himself like lady blue feather or lady bluefin or some shit like that
0: it was kristen Kristen Blufin. that's what he went by kristen what's funny you say
1: that because there is this quote i have from him and let me just see if i can find it i read that he told one of his doctors that he he said this is a quote i think i have a split personality i don't like to hurt people but i do things i'm not aware of and i think dissociative identity disorder actually makes uh makes a lot of sense for him that maybe he did become someone else and then he commits these crimes he loses time and
0: doesn't really know what he's done well, Jesus said something that was really interesting and creepy. He was saying that hadn't, I guess he wore glasses or need or at that time he wore glasses or needed contacts. I'm not sure. But when he became Kristen, he Poss- didn't need them because Kristen was yeah, younger. Yeah. I think that's more evidence that he really
1: did have. DIV. I don't
2: ever recall him wearing glasses because, you know, at the jail, mm-hmm. if you... Yeah, you know, we provide everything. So if he needed glasses, he'd he'd get the, the the basic set of birth control glasses like you get in the military. So <laughs>
0: yeah. I just wonder if he if this was at a later time. Well, I now. mean, he
2: was getting old too. He was born in '52.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. I just want to follow up, or just kind of give. Well, maybe we already gave some conclusion to Michelle Door's murder, but I I did read that it was partly mitochondrial DNA from the blood that was on the floorboards in the room where he killed her that also helped you know, link him to the crime. I
2: think uh, once, they, um, once they got away from the father being a suspect and started zeroing in on Haden Clark, mm-hmm. that's when they went in and did the blood samples in the room. And you were, you were talking about, you know, I hate to be graphic about it, but you were talking about the details. He basically, as soon as he went up in the room with her, he grabbed her around by the mouth and she bit him. Mm-hmm. And he spun her around and slashed her across the chest and then slashed her another way. It was almost like a Zorro pattern. Mm -hmm. and I can't remember if she started to scream or not, and then he stabbed her through the throat. So there was a lot of blood.
1: Yeah, the poor little thing. I did read, and I wanted to mention this, that Penny, you know, Laura's mom, did not believe that Haddon could possibly have done it. She said something like, oh, he's only a gardener. He couldn't have done that. Um, So she really trusted him.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know, to me, I... There's a lot that's scary about this case, but I think I think it's that murder of Laura Hodeling. maybe because I can identify with a 23 year old woman. I'm a little closer to that than I am being six again. But just the idea of, you know, this person who you've kind of let into your orbit, um, a stranger, but you, you trust them and that, that it could end like that. It's just it's like something out of a horror movie. I mean, it, it really is. Yeah. I I wonder I wanted to ask you when you when you're working with people and you know their history so you know like the horrible things they've done and in some cases you probably know a lot about the details of what they've done is it hard to kind of put that together with the person who's in front of you because I'll just say like I've worked with in a different in a different way, like, as a therapist with some people who've committed crimes. And it's always hard for me to put, to, like, link that history of what a person's done with the person who's sitting, usually a mild-mannered person sitting in front of me in a chair. You know what I'm saying?
2: So, basically, I'm looking at him and going, oh, no, this person never could have done that.
1: I mean, does it, do you ever feel like that or be like, this just doesn't, it doesn't fit somehow?
2: No, I don't, I don't think I ever have. Um, I'm, I've always been an error on the side of caution person. And we always stress, mm-hmm. treat everybody the same way. Mm -hmm. And I try not to learn people's charges, but, you know, some are so famous that you just can't help it, like the DC snipers and the rest of them. But for the most part, as long as you stay out of my orbit, don't cause any problems, I leave you alone, you leave me alone. And I I just try not to interact with them because, you know, and some of them are pretty charming.
1: Mm, I bet.
2: And they'll start asking, you know, you know, you you okay? You feeling okay today? You know, and they're gathering information on you. And that's something that you got to you got to realize. So I try not to interact with them personally, although Mm -hmm. there are some guys that I've known. I I call it doing life on the installment plan (laughs) where they're doing 12 months here, six months there, 19 months here. And I've known them my entire career. For twenty four years I've been seeing these dumbasses come wow. in in and out on petty shit all the time. So yeah, I do get to know some of them on the personal level, but they're not on that the Haddon Clark level or the Murder Incorporated yeah. or D C snipers or you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I'm speaking of the D.C. snipers. I noticed that a name that popped out to me was that, you know, when Haddon Clark finally revealed where Michelle's remains were, um, Chief Moose, at that time, he was Montgomery County Police Chief, made a made a remark that, you know, this was finally able to give the the family closure. And I was like, well, Chief Moose, I remember him from seeing him on TV from the D.C. sniper Mm -hmm. case. And that was he seemed like such a good guy. That whole thing
2: was a hot mess.
1: I remember that distinctly. Well, I guess, you know, anybody in this area would. I was but. telling Jim earlier that I was living in Rochester, New York at the time, but it was, it was national.
0: I mean, I was just glued to the TV about that. But just like, you know, getting your fucking mm. gas, like, just like doing a dance. Like.
2: It was funny. I you know, I looked like I was on Soul Train getting gas because I was constantly moving, chucking, jiving, ducking,
0: you know? <laughs> Jen, I'm a- Jen, I wanted to ask you about—I know I was asking you to speak to someone being transgender Mm -hmm. or whatever, but if you could just also— touch on like cross-dressing because i think i think people get confused like cross-dressing necessarily being to be in transgender right i mean being
1: trans yeah it's two different things
0: doesn't mean you're trans if you cross-dress yeah Yeah.
1: when you're trans you're not cross-dressing because you're dressing according to the gender that you are right like if i'm a trans man like i'm dressing Mm -hmm. like a man because i'm a man you know but yeah cross-dressing is really it's a different thing so cross-dressing used to be considered in the dsm the it was considered like a paraphilia i think i don't uh, hopefully it's not considered that anymore i haven't looked at my dsm-5 lately but i'm sure that it's not so cross-dressing is um just when you enjoy wearing clothing the opposite gender the opposite sex um so unrelated unrelated to being trans typically i mean if you think about it we want to dress in a way that you know that aligns with with our gender identification although i i wear nothing but t-shirts and flannel shirts lately so i'm not sure what that says <laughs> you're an
2: indigo girl
1: i'm an indigo girl yeah um you know just because like i'm not leaving the house but you know so yeah so when you're trans like that's not cross-dressing
0: yeah yeah so i think that people take that and kind of sensationalize yeah. it i guess is my point and then i mean clearly he is mentally ill right Right. That's why I don't think he's truly
1: transgender. I mean, there is some, and I think the mm-hmm. cross dressing is much more about aligning with another personality, or you know, this one, this wanting to fulfill these desires of his mother that he can't fulfill, um, than about anything, anything, you know, being trans. That's just my that's just my opinion.
0: And it seems, and this is me being a armchair psychologist, but when I've read the history, the family history, or in his history with his mom mm-hmm. in particular. As I said, you know, his mom is like taking him to different Mm -hmm. specialists. So it's not like she wasn't taking him places like she would take him here. She would take him there. And it was just kind of like, okay, now I'm going to take you here and now I'm going to take you there. Now what? Now I'm going to take you to another place. Now what? But it seemed like what was absent is that he probably at no point in his life felt like he was okay or good enough.
2: Well, he was also getting he was getting mixed fucking signals, too. You know, she's dressing him in a dress and calling him Kristen and then taking him to specialists.
0: Mm hmm.
1: And and I get the sense that she never saw herself as part of the problem. And uh, years ago, like when I was first starting mm-hmm. my career, um, I did family therapy in home family therapy. I'm so glad I don't do that <laughs> anymore. But, you know, I saw I saw that kind of stuff. Not not the same thing as Hatton Clark, but where parents were really um they were like driving the dysfunction in the family. But of course, like the client is supposed to be like the, the juvenile or the, the teenager. And it's just like but but they can't see that they're like all these blind spots in families where they Can't see like what they're actually doing to their children or, or to each other's. And I I imagine her alcoholism
0: covered up a lot of her insight too. Mm -hmm. So there's never a time for him or maybe with the other children as well, like where it's like, well, you know, you are okay. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I love you. And it didn't seem like it just seemed like that was missing. It wasn't necessarily that she didn't take him to try to seek, you know, appropriate health. I mean, they were relatively affluent. It's just that there just didn't seem to be, you know, a lot of love or affection at all any Definitely. feeling in that family. And the father,
1: and I used to see this in family therapy too, you know, usually it would be the mother who was more sort of driving the treatment and getting the treatment for the kids. And, and, but sometimes it would be opposite, but like, you know, the father and, and with the case sounds like he was just really kind of outside the orbit of the family. And, and so like mom was really alone. Cause I know, you know, we, t- I think women do tend, the mother tends to get blamed and the feminist part of me d- dislikes that. <laughs> but, but I, I do think that like, <laughs> I think the dad, um, Dad was really divorced from everything going on, you know? So, I mean, he bears- He wound up killing himself. It was just- Did he? Yeah. Wow. I don't blame him. Yeah, he died by (laughs) suicide. God. Oh my No, God. but like, seriously, and I don't know, I just have to say one more thing that's kind of outrageous. And it's like, this is like the perfect family that is a good reminder of like, why maybe you shouldn't have kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, when I think about a family like this, I'm like, thank you, God, that I never had children. Like, not that I think my kids would have ended up like this. But it's just like the things that can go wrong in a family. I don't know. It's just, I guess, between my family therapy experience and like the story, it just really brings
0: that out. Like, there's some fucked up families out there. Does anyone, does anyone know, like, what Haddon thought about his older brother Brad killing that like woman? He you
2: said, I, I, I try not to interact with him on a personal level if I don't have to. And that was definitely one that I had no desire to talk to. He'd
1: uh, <laughs> be like, how's your brother Brad? Yeah, hey, how's the family? Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know. Oh, Jesus. <laughs>
2: God. Uh- no, I I was pretty much anytime I was in the the mental health unit, I, I yeah you know, it's probably not PC now, but you know they were so medicated back then. I called it Magic Kingdom because it was mm. just they were flying high. And, oh, uh, God,
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: wow. I was more of an observer than an active participant in that program.
0: <laughs> I watched some interviews with Haddon Clark or the interrogations, and and he would he would like to sing Bible mm. songs because the only place I think that he ever felt kind of accepted was in church. Mm and he would sing this song like he's the potter i'm the clay and he's still working on me <laughs> he liked to sing that one and some other bobble i never saw person, him do that so. i
2: did see him do like some weird chanting and dancing during the world series mm-hmm. uh, i think it was 98 or 99 it was um, i think it was the yankees and the braves
1: well it's amazing you couldn't remember that i would have no idea
2: well, it stuck out because he was like in front of the TV, like snapping his fingers and doing these hand motions and twirling around. I couldn't figure out who the fuck he was rooting for, you know, and, I, and I'm sure the Yankees and the Braves could have done <laughs> without his serial killer voodoo magic to help him. But, uh, but no, I, I, I do clearly remember that.
1: I wonder if he was doing any sign language because he has there are all these drawings. If you look up Haddon Clark in art and you do an image search all of these drawings come up that he's done and some of them are on they're like for sale i teased jen that i was gonna get her that for her birthday and she's like please do not jen
0: don't (laughs) worry jen i'm not really gonna get that for your birthday big
2: big john wayne gacy painting of a clown
0: yeah we did an episode on um gacy i don't know if you listened to that one or not it's yeah um... i
2: did i've I've listened to every episode
0: oh thank you we're going to okay. have to start
1: getting some, like, some little merch to send out to people who listen to us, John. Some sausage links. <laughs> sausage links. Moldy one. <laughs>
2: snapping half of your teeth.
1: Jesus. I don't think I can, oh, I don't God. think I can ever get that image out of my mind. Oh my God. But these drawings, so going back to these drawings, like, I'm just going to give you a few, because there's so many, just a few of the subjects. So they are all, they look like they're done in crayon. And they look like they're done by a kid, but they look like something like it's better than what I could do. So they, they have some artistic merit. <laughs> but like there's little girls with bunnies. There's Garfield dressed as Santa and it says the real meaning of Christmas. And then it's got like the nativity scene up in the upper left hand corner. And Jen, there's one with Dolly Parton and she's doing and it. has the, oh, And it no. has the signs for I will always love you. I almost died when I saw that one. <laughs> <laughs> She's like Dolly with her guitar. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. And then so like they all look really sweet and you know like like an innocent child did them. And then there's one and it's done in the same style but it's not sweet. It's a drawing of a penis and it says penis and then there're like drops of semen and it says semen. <laughs> so he did that mm. one as well. Oh so like they're absolutely God. they're like crazy. So anyway, um I'm just I just want to talk a little bit about what everybody's opinion is about whether Haddon Clark is a serial killer. Cause we know he told Jesus that he killed like up to a dozen other women and girls. And I really think that he, he could have, you know, I, I don't, disbelieve disbelieve that but i also think that you know it's hard to kind of sort out what was true for him and what wasn't i don't think he knew what was true and what wasn't in a lot of cases and you know i read something there was one detective that said you know he Mm -hmm. was really hot and cold like he'd you'd kind of believe him and then like he'd he'd Mm -hmm. lead you on this wild goose chase but then there was another detective and i'm just going to see if i can find this
0: quote i know his grandparents had a place in cape cod and he had hidden he had some Jewelry and things like that that they found up there, and some of them, I guess, some That's pieces right. belong to Laura Holdoline, and they're not sure. I think where the others had come from. So, I mean, he could have just stolen from people, or he could have so? taken them from the victims. I mean, nobody knows. So,
2: my my answer is absolutely yes, because that bucket they found was over two hundred pieces of jewelry.
1: And I mean, he did steal from churches and stuff like, I mean, he would like go in, yeah. he'd dress up in women's clothes and like steal from churches while people were in choir practice, like steal, go through people's handbags. But and, you like, can't
2: steal earrings and necklaces true. and stuff like that's that. That's actually true. And he had like this little silver wood nymph that he had on top of. It, and he said that was his first kill, his angel of death.
1: Mm.
2: So, so, yeah, he I, I absolutely I believe that he he killed more women. Uh, I don't.
0: Well, there was a woman that was found, and Jen, I think you brought this up to me a few weeks ago about him, and I was like, "Oh, no, no, no! I think he was too young then." The Lady of the Dunes. Yeah, the lady, mm-hmm. the Lady of the Dunes. There was someone that they found killed in in Provincetown, right? And that she was missing her hands and her face. That's right. And he said he used her—that he did kill her—and then he used her fingers for fish bait. I did read that, but who knows if that's true? The way that she was found, though, evidently he—this is why people think that he might be responsible for this—is because Mm -hmm. when the body was found, um, was I guess kind of laying on her stomach, and her hands appeared to be buried. But what happened was Mm. that whoever did it had cut off the hands and put like the arms or forearms in the sand, almost like she was doing push-ups. And nobody knew that detail, but he knew it. Oh, that seems pretty damning to me.
2: And I mean, overall, here's the thing: when you kill like that. You don't just kill once. In my experience over the years, just dealing with people, most of it you've killed for a reason. You know, drug deal gone bad, uh, someone's wronged you, crime of passion. He's killed multiple times that we know of twice for petty revenge.
0: And, and he's very comfortable with it. And I, I think mean. he's
1: not just comfortable with it. There seems to be an element of enjoyment. Like, there's a lot There's a lot that he does with it, right? Like, he'll... The cannibalism, the torture, the... He seems to kind of pre-plan... Well, he, sometimes he pre-plans. Like, with Hodling, he pre-planned. But um, not too much with Michelle Dorr.
0: And... I had read that, you know, of course, some things he did plan and others, like you were saying, are very impulsive. I mean, he's just such a such a hard dude to figure out. And mm-hmm. I'm, along the lines of your thinking, Jen, like, I don't think he really knows what's true all the time. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I mean,
2: it, if you met him, you I think you would immediately peg there's something wrong with him. You know, he's not right. But I don't think you'd immediately jump to serial killer. When when oh. we had him, he was yeah. more or less a model prisoner. Um. We had a directive. no female staff could be alone with him um mm-hmm. with the male staff members, very meek and mild for the most part uh very passive aggressive <laughs> with female staff
1: can you give me an example of how he would be passive aggressive? what he would do well yeah,
2: it was almost childish, you know, slamming shit down, stomping um mm-hmm. snide remarks.
1: Which makes sense because he has all that resentment towards his mother and he he's acting like a child. I mean, I hate to pin everything on the mom and make it sound like it's psycho, you know, like the movie Psycho. But
0: Jesus was saying that he's like, he said, you know, Kristen was just awful, was a complete... That personality, if indeed he, you know, had DID, and then also he had another personality, or he claimed to have another personality that was named Nicole, really? and Nicole was uh, Kristen's daughter. No, I never heard of that one. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, did that come from Adrian um, Howell's book too? Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. The, the quote I was looking for earlier was um, by this guy. It's from an article by Amy Warden for the APB News, but she quotes a uh, police chief, Richard Rosenthal, and his quote. He says, "We're dealing with this serial killer here. We don't know how many people he killed. So that's one, you know, one, poli- you know, detective who thinks, so I guess we have two. <laughs> we, I I would tend to think that too. What do you think, Jen?
0: Oh, I do too. I do too. I don't, as we were just saying, I don't know if he knows, you know, the full extent of his mm-hmm. crimes or what, what's true and what isn't true, but I do think he's killed other people. And I think Jim had a good point. Like, you know, he, he would steal jewelry and things, but in order to you were saying like he would do it in church. He would like dress up like a woman, and I guess when people are in choir practice, this is just an example you gave that he would go and steal from their purses. But you don't normally keep a necklace in your purse. That's true. Yeah. So I you, didn't. Who else keeps rings
2: in it. their purse? You, you.
0: I might do a ring.
2: You maybe, but I mean, two hundred pieces of jewelry.
0: Yeah, that's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, but in, I also read that he said when he gets out, or if he were to get out, the first thing he would do. Would be to go kill his brother and his and his sister that are out because oh, I guess Jeff one and- wore a wire and another maybe testified against him. God, because he had seventy years altogether, right? Thirty for each murder and ten for theft.
2: He'll be he'll be he'll be dead by the time his timer. Is- uh,
0: I was just going to say, I'm, and again, I'm not a mental health professional, but I'm still not convinced that he didn't have paranoid schizophrenia and also DID. But mm-hmm. I'm sure. He was just so disordered. It's hard to tease mm-hmm. out any of that. And yeah, because, you know, with the whole, you know, preoccupation with revenge and he was very, also very, very paranoid person.
1: That's true. That's true. And that, I think, along with like all the sort of, you know, developmental insults he suffered as, as a child, you know, just like you had said earlier, Jen, like he didn't feel love. There wasn't a sense of love or belonging or being enough. And I think that's something that, um, when it's missing, it's, it can be really damaging, especially if it's on top of all these other things going on. So, yeah, I i mean, I think Haddon Clark and why I think he's so scary to me, because he's really the perfect storm of a serial killer. I mean, he's he's kind of got it all, you know, mm-hmm. in a really, really terrible way. I mean, when you look at the picture, I looked up the picture of the victims and, you know, you see michelle doran she's so cute and Mm -hmm. i mean it made me sad that she kind of had a difficult childhood already because her parents you know argued a lot and i'm just like god like like that poor little thing in her life you know you have you live six years and and then you're brutally murdered
2: all she wanted to do was go see her friend which was probably the right point in her day
1: i know exactly
0: well it's it's too it's like just whole like how one little decision you know how that just this cascading mm-hmm. events or just like I, I think too when he when she went to the house to ask to sp- to play with with eliza is it eliza eliza mm-hmm. yeah
1: eliza yeah
0: he didn't his brother he was telling him you know was kicking him out basically and was only giving him because he'd been apparently jerking off in front of the kids yeah so she was she ended up you know being at her dad's house and then happens to go down at just that time and i you know it sounds like you know
1: Jim had said that if we, if we met him, we'd kind of know something was off. But, you know, a six-year-old kid, there are things. I mean, I think mm-hmm. kids can be very observant and can notice a lot. But things can also go past you. And I think kids are very trusting. They just, usually at six, you haven't had enough experience to really be leery of people. And uh, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's like a monster in plain sight. They, it, the monsters that you can't recognize as monsters. And that's another th- part of this that I think scares me. Because, you know, there are people out there right now walking the streets who are like that.
0: And Haddon Clark is was is, is is creepy and disturbing as a story comes or to do a story on.
1: I agree with that. So we need to figure out something to toast on, and I don't feel like we should toast a to Haddon Clark. I, I think we should toast to Jim, who is our first guest. Yes, who, thank you for our first. Well, yeah, thank you. Like, uh, I- has worked with these difficult cases. Jeez. Yeah, you're here.
2: Thank you for, I, I love you guys' show. I, I really enjoy it. Um, you're, you're in my uh, podcast feed. Oh. So, to you, ladies.
1: Thank you so much. Cheers, everybody.